Former U.S. National Rugby Team Captain. Team Captain. Head Coach and General Manager. General Manager. Now, the co-founder and CEO of the New England Free Jacks. Now. Now. Full Contact CEO with Alex Magleby. Hey, everyone. Thanks for joining Full Contact CEO today. I'm your host, Alex Magleby. I'm also co-founder and CEO of the high-flying New England Free Jacks, and most re- recently, as I announced this morning, CEO of Heritage Sports Ventures. Joining me today is Angela Ruggiero, four-time Olympian, youngest player on the first ever women's U.S. Olympic ice hockey team. Is that true? 98 was the first? Yeah. I actually have the record I just learned recently. I'm the youngest hockey player, men's, women's gold medal. Awesome. And the most appearances? Yeah, I was like, most appearances for American man or woman. But I, I was doing some research. I'm covering the upcoming Olympics. And for NBC, I was doing some fact checking. I'm like, I didn't even know that. <laughs> I still hold the record. You have so many records. I'm excited about that stat. I was like, oh, I didn't know I was the youngest. First ever female hockey player who wasn't a goalie to play in a men's professional game. Read that somewhere. Yep, North America, Tulsa, Tulsa, Tulsa Oilers, 2005, 2006. That was awesome. Yep. Grew up in California, Harvard, and HBS graduate, currently co-founder and CEO of Sports Innovation Lab. There's so much more to your experiences and resume, so let's jump right into it. Welcome to Full Contact CEO, Angela. Great to have you. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's great. Quick uh, warm-up. I'm just going to say a word and say the first thing that comes to mind. Crimson. Harvard. <laughs> come on, I went there. <laughs> Rivals of Dartmouth, come on. <laughs> was that like a was that a softball or was I supposed to say something? No, it's great. It's great. <laughs> you know, uh, yeah. It's actually my favorite color. People, not because I went to school there. It just has always been my favorite color. Really? That's, not, that's why you would choose to go to that Harvard. Weird. That's the only reason you would choose to go to Harvard. Was it was, it was like color. a subliminal thing. I was like, I love yeah. to wear that jersey. I just like the color. <laughs> so I have to do it. Nagano. Japan. Oilers. Oh, or uh, Tulsa. I mean, <laughs> now I know what you're doing. You're, yes, you're, you got it. Yeah. Uh, Bridgewater. Got it. Uh, a lot of fun. <laughs> I don't think I've ever heard somebody describe BA in that regard. But is it true? So you grew up in California. How did you get into how did you get into ice hockey? You grew up in like Simi Valley. So my father grew up in New Haven, Connecticut. Played hockey as a youngster out here just for fun. And one of the kids, my brother was six, I was seven, my sister was eight, just wanted us to do something, you know, play some sports and why play soccer when you can play hockey in California. That's <laughs> just to make my mom. Yeah, we he actually originally signed up my brother and they were lacking hockey players. This is the late eighties, Southern California. And he's like, you know, do you have any other kids? He's like, oh, I got a couple girls and they're like, bring them out. We'll give you a family discount. So that's always the joke. They we fell into the sport. We got uh three for the price of two because Southern California didn't have enough hockey players in the 80s to field a might see hockey team. Yeah, I was the same <laughs> in Utah. We, in Utah, we were all rollerblading hockey. And then, I mean, there was one rink, two rinks in the entire valley, and they need more hockey players. So suddenly you're playing on a travel team B. <laughs> it's like, I'm on travel totally. team. <laughs> this is cool. How did you get you're from there? A lot too. Yeah, how did you get from there to the East Coast to school? So I actually, there was the first all-girls team to come out of California. It wasn't a team. It was just a group of, I think it was like 12 to 17-year-olds that they cobbled together and flew out to Connecticut for a summer tournament. And I was on that team at the time. I was 14. And someone from Choate, the Rosemary Hall, the prep school, saw me and said, hey, you're pretty good. You want to play for us? And I was doing really well in school at the time. So it made sense in terms of academics. Honestly, academics more than athletics because I was playing boys hockey in California and I had to switch to girls hockey that for the first time, I mean, that summer tournament was the first time I played with girls and that was a great school. I mean, how do you not go to Choke? Right. It's amazing. Was that hard though, to be on the opposite coast from your family at, you know, 15, whatever it is? Yeah. Yeah. It was really hard. And I never got to go home because we always had hockey. So I came home for Christmas and summertime and, but you know, again, opportunity of a lifetime, I even asked my mom, like, mom, would you do it again today? And, and, you know, she's like, selfishly, I never, you know, I wouldn't because I love you and I want you at home. But the opportunity I got to be seen by the East Coast kind of hockey circuit, the national team, which I made, you know, the year after. And then and then just focus on my academics in a nurturing environment like that just changed my life. Yeah, I loved show. I always recommend it. This is a debate my wife and I have. I grew up public school, Utah, and you had to be very self-motivated, right, to kind of manage through mm-hmm. things. And she went to St. Paul's and was fortunate 
to go there and just the difference in the opportunity and, and, and nurturing is, is a great word. Just that everything was totally. set up. Yeah. Even though it was challenging. Yeah, I came from public school. You know, I was only used to public school. So your point of like self-motivated, I was self-motivated. But then, you know, I was nurtured, but I was pushed. That's for sure. But it, I came out, you know, on the other side in a, in a positive way. So, uh, and then, yeah, it was a great environment for me. So you were at Choate and you started to play for the U.S. while you were still there before going to. Yeah, my. Yeah, crazy. Tried out for the junior national team the summer after my freshman year at Choate and made it. And they said, do you want to try out for the national team that same summer? Made it. So went to Finland and I was 15 and I was playing with like 30 year olds and getting their autographs in the locker room. And you know, I was in awe of these women. They were like my idols and I'm on the team with them. I'm like, but where am I? But if, yeah, it, it changed everything making that team that summer because suddenly I, I, well, not only got to wear a Team USA jersey for the first time, but also like I, my, I had my eyes set on Nagano in Japan, which was three years later. Like I had to train and figure out a way to do that while attending, you know, a prep school and all that. Very difficult, that. yeah, academically. Yeah. And so you made it. You made it to the Nagano team, ninety-eight Olympic medal, eighteen years old, hadn't even graduated yet. Yeah, How did you crazy. manage that? So, as I say, it was the best senior year ever. I took that I first piece from the road. So I remember taking it at some random high school alone, got all my applications in, went to Nagano, won a gold medal, came home. We went to Hawaii for a week after the United was our sponsor at the time. And yeah. They flew the whole Olympic team through, 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 through Honolulu. So we stayed for a little bit. And then I had to go back to Choate because I had my senior year to finish up. And they were flexible, but they're like, you got to do your spring term and get your English credits in and things. But I went back, you know, had a school standing ovation. Like my whole school watched the game live. They got up at like four in the morning or some god awful hour to watch. And, 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 and to this day, it's funny. Our headmaster gave them the day off that day. He gets to pick a day a year and gave <laughs> that day off so they could watch. So That's I have people today that are like, oh yeah, you're that, you're that athlete. Thanks for giving us that day off. <laughs> That's what I was going for. But, but I, you know, I would, yeah, it was a great year. Got into Harvard, got to play. We won a New England championship that year at, for track and field yep. as a thrower. I was like, come on, how do I, how do I duplicate this in my life? <laughs> You're just a complete but, badass. But what about the pressure of like preparing to try to make out the team, making the team, same time you're applying to colleges and then, but, but now you're going to go perform on the biggest stage. It just seems like, oh, no big deal. I'm going to go win a gold. How did you manage that? Like normalized pressure for me. It normalized because it all worked out in some ways. Like I, I had to compartmentalize it and obviously it was a lot of work, not undermining the work that went into it and the focus and all the, you know, the dedication, all those things. But it, it, it gave me a lot of confidence too coming out of that year. I'm like, oh my God, like I did it. Like that was hard, but I did it. And I, you know, the, all the, the studying and the training and luckily had success on, on both, both ends, but yeah, it, nor it, it not normalized, but it adjusted me, I guess, to high pressure situations. And so when I got to Harvard and continue to play for the national team or any other thing moving forward, like in some ways I thrive under pressure and I love pressure. Like I love those big games when Canada was there and you had to elevate and there was a lot on the line. I loved that. Or those intense moments in you know work or in school whatever i kind of like i guess i'm an adrenaline junkie now i like I, come on like give me the pressure <laughs> what a healthy I mindset taught, i don't think i don't think you you just get it i think it's like you get pushed and you're like oh i got through that and i'm okay and you know sometimes you fail and sometimes you don't and you succeed and i don't know you just approach pressure differently that's how i do i'm like i look for the opportunity to get pushed i guess is how yeah I put it. But not much fear of failure there, or or you're just like I'm gonna. If I fail, it's okay. Yeah, it's okay. I mean, I'm yeah. an entrepreneur, as you know now. Like, yeah. I get told a lot. I get told no all the time now. And all the time. There was like, oh, they, you see the success, and you see the the public. Look how great we're doing, you know. But you don't see all the other stuff that you're not doing well. And just like an athlete, you see the success on the scoreboard, but you don't see all the years and hours and time you put in the underbelly of of success is like failure. Like you gotta, you gotta fall. You gotta learn. You gotta fall. You gotta learn. You gotta get told no. You gotta get back up. So in some ways I'm like, you know, you can gut punch me. I'll get back up 
And that's just to me part of the process. Like I expect to get gut punched once in a while or I expect to fall or else like honestly what's the point doing something in life that's easy like no fun for me I, I like want it to be hard because when you get there or even if you don't get there you're like I tried like yeah. feel good about Did it. everything I possibly but, could this morning I woke up at five in the morning before the kids get up I'm looking at this today's gonna be a great day our announcement we just bought Heritage Sports we're, we're so growing cool. fast I got Angela on the podcast it's gonna be amazing and then you open your email and there's 50 fires you have to put out and which one are you gonna prioritize because you can't do them all <laughs> it's like oh, oh shoot it's gonna be one of those days it's gonna be one of those yeah. days but you're coming out of Olympics gold everybody's celebrating this amazing team you're about to go to Harvard you're on Wheaties boxes and then it just all that energy seems to dissipate in terms of how our sports world was certainly at the time where it was very linear broadcast based. There wasn't a, there wasn't a carry on for that team effectively in terms of press. How did you manage that going from like this high of high where they on the, on the, on the field, on the rink, the performance was the very, very best in the world, but then the world is recognizing that and kind of the, the new it thing. And then suddenly that seems to disappear in Olympic cycles historically, at least. Yeah, I think pre pre digital era, which I lived in, unfortunately, my boys of like, I know I played hockey, guys. I'm yeah. gonna show you some videos. It was actually really good. <laughs> it was halfway decent. Yeah, I don't know. I, I think we all, especially women's hockey, women's sports, we we burst on the scene, in my opinion, American women in particular, in '96. It was soccer and volleyball and basketball and a lot of these sports being seen for the first time. Then hockey in you know '98, and you said we're on the Wheaties box and we're getting all this recognition. And there wasn't a media vehicle. There wasn't an expectation. There wasn't, no one was prepared to be like, oh, the public loves these women. What do we do? Like, and we fought hard to get our NGB, USA Hockey, after that to not drop the ball because they, they had some ways dropped the ball. They weren't ready for the interest in our team. And so overnight, we were, we were the it girls. Like, everyone wanted a piece of us. And I mean, I had to go back to high school, so I didn't have to worry about it. That's that. But my, you know, I, was, I, I literally had like 10 days in between, but my, you know, Cammy Granado and our captains and some of the leaders of the team at the time were getting pulled left and right. And so we fought to say we need a more structured way to get in front of people. Now, today, as you know, athletes can go direct to consumer. They can just pick up their phone. They, they have a direct line of communication to the fan and can create their own videos. And, you know, but back in 98, back in the 2000s you you had to rely on your ngb your your entourage your your agent your brand the brands that represented you to get your voice out there the writers that covered sport so different dynamic today i think we will always be proud though that we put women's hockey on the map we were the first that we started the conversation and that it hopefully only continues to get better with you know technology and and fan interest and and how society's just evolved to, to i think suddenly recognize People like watching women's sports. They watch it at the Olympics. So it, to me, there's a formula that works. And we've just unfortunately not replicated that formula outside of the Olympics. We've, we kind of default to the professional men's model in America that, you know, relies on stats and, you know, we can get into this. I, I've done a yeah, lot of no. research around it. Like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> this, is your, this is your expertise. Absolutely. But this, this is the part, and I, maybe later in the podcast, but it's what on men's sports we've done really well is, yeah, statistically driven, but there's stories. There's great stories. The Olympics are great stories and exposure. And we haven't carried that. Well, historically, we haven't carried that through between those big moments for a lot of our sports and certainly our women's sports. Historically, where men have that and then there's betting on top of that, plus the linear broadcast. So they get the exposure. The stories are, mm -hmm. you know, then it's a multi multiplying effect. But I, I'm really curious on, on a bunch of those fronts, especially when it comes to women's sports vis-a-vis -vis us and rugby and your experiences on that. So 2002 Salt Lake City, you did a Salt Lake City Olympics, mm -hmm. graduating from Harvard, similar time frame. So it took me six years to graduate because I took two years off for the Salt Lake City Olympics. Yeah. We trained two full years in Lake Placid, New York, and thought that was going to be enough. We were 33 and 0. We were amazing. That was the best team I've ever yeah. played on. But we choked in the final. <laughs> so we, Canada. We lost to Canada. Yeah. First loss of the season. The tough loss in front of our home crowd, defending gold medalists. To this day, it was the hardest loss I've ever had. Everyone's like, oh, you want a, you want a silver. And, you know, no one's ever lost a goal. <laughs> if you've been in those shoes, it's, it's, yes, I'm proud of it. But as a competitor, it's still really, really hard. 
especially if you sacrifice that much and we're legitimately the better team and number of circumstances kind of fall apart and you you don't pull together as a team we weren't a team so yeah that was a hard that was a hard olympics for me but proud like i said proud that we were there proud that we won a won a silver in some ways the fast forward four years the bronze medal was easier we didn't even make it to the final but winning a bronze winning your final game Right. I don't know. I know. We weren't supposed to win. We weren't the best team. We could have won, but we weren't that year. So yeah. So graduated a couple years later and had to figure out where to play. There wasn't really professional women's leagues at the time. I went up to Canada. There was sort of a there was a pro league. I don't even know if you call it that, but there was good hockey. That's all I was looking for. And so played in Montreal for a year and you know dipped my toe in the water with the, the Oilers, as you mentioned before. So tried to stay. You know that's the biggest thing. A lot of a lot of women's athletes retire too young because they don't have somewhere to play they're not getting paid the way that the men do you know it's hard to be a tom brady when you don't have that type of support around you but that's not to say you can't be a tom brady that you can't push your body that hard and that long it's just a i think a bigger sacrifice on the women's side so so speaking of now in your new role you started sports innovation lab just you know quickly take us through the impetus for that and then what what does sports innovation lab do so went on, so played four Olympics ultimately, went back to Harvard Business School, studying disruptive innovation, overall business trends. In parallel, I was on the, I got elected to the International Olympic Committee, which, you know, made me a full member. I got to be on all these international boards, U.S. Olympic Committee, the Paralympic Committee board. I was chief strategy officer of the LA Olympic bid, which gave me really interesting global exposure to global sport, to, to how federations and national Olympic committees and bidding committees and, you know, just sport was evolving or not evolving. And I was looking at, honestly, the how carefully we focus on data and statistics and analytics and like on the athletes, on the performance side. But when it came to the business side, it, it felt like we were still shooting from the hip. A lot of these really important strategic decisions you talked earlier about the shift from linear to digital or linear to, you know, kind of the the new way that fans are consuming sports, the new way that the business model of sports is rapidly changing. And I felt personally like I needed a sports innovation lab. So what we are is we're a research, a data-driven research company. We we build analytics around fan behavior, help you understand who your fan is, and then allow you to use that data to make more strategic investments around these build by partner decisions on technology. Because technology is changing all of our behaviors. But if you could, if you could really understand that, you'd be better suited in the sports business realm, whether you're a team, a league, a federation, a brand, a media uh, partner, um, an investor to, you know, what NFTs or, you know, VR, or, you know, oh, the blockchain. There's just all these buzzwords. Um, Metaverse. Come down to it. Like if no one knows how to use NFTs or is like are using them in your league or betting, like you shouldn't be in. It's a different strategy then, oh, actually we can see and measure and quantify what your fans are doing or what we think they'll do. You're going to be smarter with your investments. So we're a strategy firm, data-driven strategy firm that really helps you unlock your fan and grow your fan base, enhance your fan base and and dive deeper into, you know, the catch-all fan engagement bucket. So take case study Free Jacks. We have data input from social media. So we, you kind of understand it's what they give you. We have data from emails. We have data from purchases, tickets, merchandise, and other few pieces. How will you, will you, would you guys take that information, digest it, and then come back to us and say, you know what? They actually don't want to buy whatever. They want to buy this, or you need to change the timing of your, like what, how does that process work? Yeah. So great question. So there's a lot of firms out there that would do what you're saying. Look at your CRM system and go, this is what your fans are doing. Here's how you better target. Here's the timing. Here's the market that you should be focused on. But we believe 90 to 95% of your current or potential fan base is outside of your CRM system. So people that might like look at your uh, feed on social and be like, huh, free jacks. Oh, I like that athlete or, oh, a nice goal. Or maybe you're moving from linear, they're watching on linear, but you don't know who they are because Nielsen captures that um, or abstracts that. Or like they've never gone to your game, but they watch you, they consume you, 
or they've gone to your game, but they bought your ticket on a secondary market. So you're not in their system. So there's all these basically fans outside of your purview. That's where we focus. We're like, look, if you could understand who those fans are. That's the holy grail. And that's what we're focused on. The the 90 to 95% outside of who you already know. We absolutely think you should be investing in business analytics internally and those like optimizing the fan base that you know and that you have a relationship with. But what we're trying to do is help you see outside of that to that random fan in the middle of, you know, Uruguay that's like that loves your players and maybe would buy, maybe would spend, maybe would be someone that you could pull into your fan base. So that's that's what we're really focused on. And, really- and and again, it having then comparative analysis across teams, leagues, across sports too. You know, what, why is basketball? Why is soccer? Why you know having again that comparative framework to help you see and invest again smartly because we can do you can't do everything limited bandwidth limited capital so we're trying to help you hone in on the things that really matter to your fans the most right so you trademark the company trademarked uh, fluid fan what is fluid fan what is that the fluid fan is the the future fan they're already here you know it's not just your kids it's your your grandfather who's got a second screen in front of him when he's watching tv so rather than look at fans again through the lens of demographics we look at through behavior we took the catch-all fan engagement bucket and broke it apart so are you buying what are you watching how are you creating content are you co-watching i mean all these different ways are we believe fan engagement behaviors and so the fluid fan really is a manifestation of like looking at those behaviors over the last four or five years trying to isolate what they are talk about them and showing you at a high level how they behave. You can get all of our um, research. It's free on our website. A lot of publicly available um, documents on the fluid fan, uh, right. sportsilab.com. Download it because it's, you know, these these fans are open to change. It's not just generational. You're not, you know, it's not the Red Sox tattooed on your arm and like you just, you have to be a Red Sox fan. They're, no, they're open to different teams, different sports, different genders, different fan. They're empowered to choose because they have, technology technology is really a thing that's unlocked this it's not just your linear or whatever's in your local no ott social again this digital transformation that we've unlocked allows these fans to consume anything anywhere um so we've empowered them to be a fan of anything and they're continuously evolving they might like you one day but they drop you the next you gotta really stay on top of how their behaviors are changing and just quick example I expect to buy groceries now with the push of a button. I don't even go to the store anymore with the pandemic. My behavior has actually changed. Dramatically. I expect to do that now with everything. Like I'm I'm disappointed as a fan if I can't push a button and buy a jersey, push a button and buy whatever I want because my behavior outside of sports has changed and I expect that now in sports. So we as fans, as people, as consumers are evolving and we want sports to understand some of that evolution because again that's just expectation so the fluid band is a catch-all for like your future consumer that looks and behaves very differently that before you might have had a monopoly on today's fan is like very fickle and demanding and we're trying to help you understand what they look like so you can beat the fortnights of the world beat the Netflixes of the world beat these other forms of entertainment, other sports even, and stay relevant. Because at the end of the day, you know, you and I love sports and I know how great it is to keep kids active and inspire the next generation. And, um, but you got to be entertaining to do that. You can't just, yeah, unfortunately, you can't just be an athlete anymore. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you got to do more. Amazing. And one of the, one of the, I've been looking from a distance for a while now on the work you've been doing with the fan project which I find fascinating. And if I understand correctly, you guys have aggregated data from multiple, multiple different sources and basically said, this is, there's so much opportunity here that is being, that is missing, particularly around women's sports. Will you take us through that project and where, where it is today and what are the lessons? Sure. Yeah, we've been, so at Sports Innovation Lab, we've, we've helped the NHL, the NFL, FIFA, Google, Nike, Coca-Cola. I mean, we've worked with all the big brands, the big leagues the big the big sponsors etc and and as a female athlete i was honestly frustrated we put a report out two years ago which we're going to release again next month around the top 25 most innovative teams in the world i saw that and i was like and why are the free jacks on there 
Yeah. Well, yeah. you probably didn't even make the cut like yeah. women's sports because the we kept it at a threshold. You have to be, it's like by revenue. So yeah. essentially knocked out most startup leagues, most long tail sports, women's sports. And it's really the bigger. Yeah. The, the man years, the man cities. Exactly. And so yeah. they crushed it. Yeah. That's half of them were international football clubs building enterprise value. And so part of that we were, you know, I was reflecting, well, God, I'm, I'm not promoting the great work that younger leagues, women's leagues, there's a lot of innovation happening and we're not doing a lot of work in women's sports. And but I know there's so much potential there, so much potential. And I talk about it all the time. So rather than have another opinion, said, what if we used our methodology, looked at the fan of women's sports, men and women that like women's sports, and we asked them to contribute their social media archives so we could look longitudinally at their behavior over you know 10 years and see when do they become fans? What are they buying? What are they doing? And that's the fan project. We wanted to unlock the business potential of women's sports with data. And we asked the fans to participate and they did. And the results were astounding. I mean, I knew it intuitively, but data's data. And it essentially said the most fluid fan are fans of women's sports because you can't be lazy. Because they have to be, they have to be, right? You got to be crazy nimble. You got to go find your app or your athlete or your time. It's it's not spoon fed to you. So you've actually forced the hand at these fans to change their behavior, to download the app, to to act in a way that most sports fans will act in five or 10 years. They're going to be in the the burrows of their reddits and they're going to be finding their communities and they're already they're already there. So really interesting you know, these bullseye fans of 10% that are going to drive 50 to 80% of your revenue are in women's sports. So the avid fans, then what was also interesting is that level of avidity, if that's a word, uh, that they were love brands. When brands sponsor own sports, they don't buy the product. They'll talk about the product. They are just like, I love you brand for supporting a thing that I care about. So you get deeper engagement. They watch longer. We pulled out, you know, viewership data. We saw that that fans of women's sports, like non-NBA, so WNBA non-playoff games, they watched significantly longer than an NBA playoff game because they just love it. So they're like watching longer. They're spending more. We're like, these are like your deep fans. And then the big recommendation of the market is don't lift and shift the men's model. These fans want different things. They don't just want, again, the statistics and the, box scores they want the whole person they want the entertainer they want the league to reflect who they are and and so you should be spending more on storytelling spending more on you know access to these athletes spending more on not just the game but everything in between and so it was a good it was a fascinating project for us we're we're still doing a lot of work in the women's sports market as a result and there's just a lot of money to be made to be honest and those that understand it now and build what we call the community-based monetization model. We think um, there's a tremendous amount of upside for those that, that get it and, and actually invest in it. You, you mentioned a great TED, TED Talk. You, you mentioned the lift and shift. That's basically copying it, putting it over here, assuming it'll work, maybe even not even funding it nearly as close and why isn't this working? And then the idea of shrinking it and pinking it. I thought was, <laughs> that was brilliant. As we, you know, rugby's always had a really strong women's game and a really strong men's game. Are you still in the world rugby EC, are you still doing yep. that? Yeah. Yep. And, and you're the only woman on the board, or is there now another? I think only woman. that's, yeah, crazy. Well, the only woman. And it's the fastest growing part of yeah, It's the fastest growing part of our sport. So we've tried to think and contemplate how do we, how do we introduce professional women's rugby, 15 aside rugby in the United States? How do we grow it? And my biggest fear is that we end up because the the investment model may be a longer term runway for for the investors involved or the market opportunities may be different that suddenly we're going to have two teams and players employees and the compensations aren't necessarily going to be the same and my biggest fear is we're going to get that wrong in order to make it work long term how do how do we how do we look at this so that that's not the case so that we can do it correctly, build it wisely so it has a long runway. It can survive, but thrive. Yeah, that's that's the biggest struggle is men have a leg up. They have years and lots of investment behind them. 
And so women are like women's sports, women's rugby is the startup. I mean, across the board, you're competing with even even if it's a men's 15 here in the U.S., which doesn't, you know, isn't as popular as, you know, hockey or or some of the other sports. It's it, it, it. you're still, you still have a league. You still have a league. You still have like investment. You still have an avid fan, fan base already built in. So to me, it all comes down to investment. There's, I think, you know, if you build it, they will come kind of philosophy for me. And part of what the fan project was about was to show that there is a market out there. You just have to do it maybe differently. Don't just copy and paste the men's model. Again, do it differently. We'll just slap pink on it. It's your opportunity to experiment too. And in some ways, again, if if you do it well, the return on investment is significantly higher because there are fans out there that want to consume all women's sports. They're just dying. And if you do it well and you do it in an entertaining fashion, remember that sports is entertainment. You're we I think there's just a, a massive opportunity. And if you can win, I mean I mean, I play hockey. There's there's a big discrepancy between the, the haves and the haves not, unfortunately. Fans love winners. Fans love, especially in America. Like if the yeah. if the US players won, they'd be like the women's soccer team here. Exactly. And so men's rugby is gonna require, in my opinion, a lot of money to be competitive. But you could put a fraction of that into the women's game, build a championship program. Agreed. And people are gonna gravitate to that. And that, you know, again, you have NCAA here in the US that's pulling in left and right and starting rugby pro- women's rugby programs in some ways to balance out Title IX, but also just because it's such a fast-growing sport. So I think, again, women's rugby has so much opportunity. Not every market in this market in the U.S., I think in particular, if one, you could win, because America, unfortunately, that's a prerequisite. <laughs> <laughs> um, but build that model, then that, that model around not just the performance side, but the entertainment side in a different way. And that's a formula for success. Again, at a fraction of the investment that I think would be required on the men's side. So it's not like neither, you know, it's not mutually exclusive. I think you can do, you should do both. Right. With the World Cup conversation and, you know, if, if America is able to host, you know, for the men, just the exposure alone will, I think, open open eyes. And, and even if even if the, the result isn't a gold, the exposure that, that I think Americans could see. And, and, you know, we see that in cricket as an example. There's like pockets of like avid fans in different sports here that if you build it again, you don't need to own the stadium. Like there's there's other ways to build a fan base, even without that built in rich cultural history here. Right. So anyway, I'm bullish on women's sports in general i just think it's people have to be realistic this is a long-term play yeah you got to invest can't expect to return in two years and go oh my god i lost all my money well duh you're supposed to lose money like anytime you build anything great in life you expect to be in the red if you're not you're not investing enough in my opinion at until a certain point where then you built an empire i mean that's that's the approach i think that that we all have to think about when we you know the double standard, I guess, I see a lot. Oh, wow, the women's league went went, went under in like three years. I'm like, yeah, and like a, on the men's side, we're, yeah, yeah, and the men's side, we're willing to lose money year on and year out. And the XF, look yeah. how much the XFL lost in like yeah. a month, Completely. and then they folded, and and they got bought like a second later, and they're gonna do it all over again, and no one even blinks at that. Yeah. So there's there's still this double standard, and I'm just trying to be objective, not emotional about the opportunity. I think the more that the fan project and these conversations around like the business side, the business opportunity of women's, the women's sector, open people's eyes up. Then I think you'll start seeing these investments. But right now it's always felt a little too emotional. That's why we, the fan project was like, let's strip emotion out and just show you the data, just show you like the fan base. that right. they're You've, there. Said, and you've said, I mean, if you haven't invested in it today, you're, you should have invested in it yesterday and you're behind already. Right. And I think that's a really, really pertinent point. Yeah, it's like the NBA. You know, if you could have gotten early in the NBA or, you know, the NFL, you'd, you'd, you'd have a lot of money right now. I think we're at those early stages on the women's side yet. They're not driving tons of cash, but society has evolved where they expect it. Kids expect to see men and women. You know, it's it's not as, as big of an anomaly as, you know, 10, 20 years ago when I played. Technology's enabled it, right? We talk a lot about that, that no matter what sport or what gender, because of technology, you're not beholden to the linear 
exposure. You can get exposure. You just have to be creative and, and get on different platforms now. So technology's enabled it. And, you know, and your athletes too, your athletes can promote your league or your sport in a way that because they can just talk to fans and create that fan base that even if the infrastructure of a league or a team isn't robust, you can still have really, really great mouthpieces for your sport just through the athlete channels alone. The, the community-based monetization model, by that storytelling direct to the consumer, over time, monetization comes in the form of sponsorship, ticket sales, market, merch. Is that kind of how you look at um, that? Yeah, it's, it's really more, the community's monetization model is more trying to figure out where your communities lie. So who, are, who is the community you, and what are their behaviors? Who is the community? Exactly. So it goes back to our fluid fan. If you break up those fan engagement behaviors and you realize, oh my God, our sport loves betting. There's a huge community of bettors. Like let's just over-index on betting partnerships and statistics and things that allow our fan base to consume what they want outside of just the game. Or no, our fan base actually... All they want is access to the athletes. The community is around the athletes themselves, not the sports, the athletes. Okay, so you'd invest in technologies and infrastructure that allows your fans to get closer physically and digitally to those athletes. And that'll drive those communities to be like, oh, my God. you know, LeBron James. Wow, like there's a whole LeBron James community out there. And no matter what team he goes on, people will follow him around. So we basically try to unlock in the community-based monetization model, like, where do your communities live and how are they behaving and how then would you invest in experiences that bring those communities together? And, you know, at the end of the day, sports is about community. It, in the old days, it was physical. You had to go to your local team and buy the ticket and sit in that. And that's why we, a lot of people came. They didn't really, maybe they love the sport, but maybe they just love being around one another. And in today's era, it's like digital communities and other ways that you can bring people together through sport, through these athletes, through, but again, there's revenue. I think that's the biggest thing we keep coming back to, like understand those communities, build experiences, drive more revenue, drive more engagement and, and make your fans happy because they behave differently now. It's you gotta, well anyway, we're trying to help everyone stay on top of it. Yeah. They're, they're great. Fans are crazy. They want a lot. They're demanding. <laughs> yeah, demanding in a good way. In a good way, our in friends are awesome. They challenge us. That, that's, that is super helpful, and I think it's validating in some ways, but it challenges some of, some of our assumptions. That's and my assumptions. That's I would love to offline and jump into that a bit more. Team culture. Yeah, the traditional ways won't go away. Yeah, those are standards: the sponsorship and your media rights and ticket sales. But what we're trying to do is say, don't just think about the traditional way or demographics, which you would do with your CRM oh, let's target like 18 to 24-year-olds. We're like, no, 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 no. The whole, there's a, a community of people that just want to co-watch together. You just want to be on a platform with sport in the middle of it talking about the sport. Yeah. Like, huh. Twitch. And the, yeah, Twitch. If you knew your fans were co-watchers and no matter what shape or size or age or gender, like you throw out demographics, but you're like, we have a community of co-watchers and all they want to do is talk about rugby while they're watching a game and like have a drink at home because they don't like going to games anymore. But like, oh my God, we should be investing hand over fist in a partnership with Twitch or a way to get our fans on the same platform with that function enabled. You know, there and there's a lot of again platforms out there that we're experts in identifying. So that's the uh, that's what we're trying to do is then say, well invest in these companies, talk to these companies, uh, partner with these companies because it looks different than just the traditional way that you're going to, you know, engage them. The you, You've been on a lot of really good teams and a lot of teams that haven't necessarily lived up to potential. You've also been on teams in business. Team culture, you know, it's much bandied about. But what has made, besides talent, what has made some of those teams, you know, in the in the ice arena and just in, in business function and, and, and hit their peak performance? I'd start with trust. When people trust one another, because you can have... You can take a compliment and know someone really cares about you, but you can also take criticism and, and also know they care about you and see it as an opportunity to grow. So trust is really important in, in to me in any high-performing team because you can have those hard conversations or you can appreciate when people say good job. So trust, open communication, 
knowing who you're knowing your role. I think that's really important. Yeah. Having clarity you know, on that. You can't, what is your role and, and own it. And it doesn't have to be star center scoring the game winning goal. It could be fourth line bench warmer, but like you own it and people, people on your team appreciate it. So having, you know, knowing where you're going as a team together, like what's the vision, making sure everyone knows what their role is in that vision and then creating a sense of community trust where you can work through difficult things because anything that requires teamwork is difficult. And so you're going to need to be open and honest and encouraging to one another to get to that end goal together. So yeah, I'd say that's to me the the formula of like team culture and business is the same thing. I mean, it's, it's, that is a team life is, I always say life is a team sport. Like everything in life requires this family. I mean, work, everything. It's, it's, it's all, you can't do anything in life alone. In my opinion. Well said the, but in a startup right now we've expanded. We're 20 plus employees, not including the the playing group, just the the office staff and, and all those pieces. And as we're growing as a startup, it's yeah, 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 you're responsible for marketing and all that entails. But then also, yep, we're all gonna help put up tents at the field, and like it's like it's your role is this, but it's also all of this, <laughs> like yeah, wherever. Exactly, and in sports is a great example. That rugby, in particular, is yeah, your job is to you know run up the field and decide if you're going to make a pass or not. But if you make the that decision, we all now have to, have to change what we were doing to support the decision you made, which has this knock-on mm-hmm. effect. Um, which is which is hard in a startup because it's not bureaucratic. It's not this is all you have to worry about. It's actually no, you have to all worry about all parts of this business, and uh, sometimes that's the that's the difficult part. Transitioning, you've had to make significant transitions. Obviously, world class player into you know world class entrepreneur. How, those transitions, how did you know when it was time? How did you know when it was time to to hang up the skates? I had to just listen to my heart. I almost retired two thousand six found the love of sport again love trained my ass off for 2010 is that because you took some time away to kind of digest yeah i took some time away i was frustrated with the bronze to be honest and then you know it's a lot to train and again at the time there wasn't a professional league that was you know paid you well and you could hyper all the high performers are there you you had to move to russia or either trade-offs anywhere you would have decided to go so so it was a lot to decide to come back for those former years. But when I came back, I loved it. I was like a little kid in a candy store. I just loved hockey. You know, I was having just, I was a goofy 30-year-old, like out there on the ice. And I retired when I was 31, which is pretty young, to be honest. I was the old lady, though, which is so funny. But but I definitely had one more Olympics in me if I wanted physically. I was still doing well, like, but I wasn't emotionally there I still loved it, but I realized so when I went to the Harvard Business School or one of their open houses, I left like fired up. I'm like, oh my God, I'm, I can't wait to learn. I can't wait to be in this environment. I was like, oh my God, what do I need to do to go to this school? I'm I'm so excited. And it, it felt like, why am I more excited for being a nerd again versus like being an athlete? And, but at the core, I was just in sport as an elite athlete and playing at the national team for 16 years at that point, I knew the formula required for success. Now you can always get better, but more or less, you know, 80, 20, I knew what I needed to do to, to be good. I had to, what was, you know, the, the input to, to get yeah. the output I needed. I needed. Right. So it, it, it wasn't as exciting for me or new. I, you know, and, and I don't know, I felt like my time, I felt like I did everything at some point. I look back, I go, what am I still playing for? Like, I pr- I don't need to prove anything. I feel like I've accomplished everything. And and I feel this gravitation towards school and learning and business and figuring out what's next for, you know, my second career. So I really, I think at the end of the day, it was a gut feeling of where am I so excited to wake up in the morning? Because going to the ice rink, you got to be excited. Like, it's hard. You got to wake up at five in the morning and drag your equipment into a cold rink like that's so fun but yeah the the it's your gut in some ways like and if you don't have passion you're not going to be successful in anything in life and so i was passionate about something else and i was like all right i gotta listen to myself here don't try just so excited to dominate hbs intramural hockey oh yeah (laughs) that was that was fun that was like yeah 
that was no one was there for other than have a good time. <laughs> exactly. I used to see the Tuckies up in in Hanover. You know, they would they would just, they'd be going, but it was like a party just to go to intramural hockey. It was it was great. I, I think your point is a very oh, good yeah. one. Is there were there was something else there that you were really excited about and like planting those seeds as an athlete and what we're working on with, with our players and making sure they're planting those seeds. So they have that future. So it, it, the future has started before the one ends. Similar experience that I went through summer of 2004, we started a sports video analytics company. That was right when sports code was coming into being and all those things. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I had the sevens world cup in 2005 and it was just right. It was because there was that other thing that I was so fired up to, to wake up to do every day and it wasn't the playing wasn't great and I didn't have more physically in me but I think to your point is is I knew that I would be spending so much other time in that space where I wanted to be that I wouldn't mm-hmm. be able to deliver on the grind it's a fun grind but the grind of you know continuing to, to chase an oval ball around the field and totally I would so, play sevens by the way if I if I had to play, play you dominate any play. rugby you would be ama- awesome I mean I look back and I'm like oh gosh. Because hockey, they took checking out of hockey for women, which is crazy. It's crazy. Because I grew up playing checking, and I loved it. And the IHF, I believe, wanted to protect the girls. It's ridiculous. That's why rugby is awesome. Crazy. And I look, I go, the same. I go look at rugby. Look at like yeah. thing. There's like harder sports to me, it's like more physical sports out there. But they, the the sport has fundamentally changed because of that rule difference. Not completely, but you know, you have to be more skilled to be honest. Yeah. To get, remove the player from the puck but i used to love i mean i had the mo- i still have the most another record i probably hold is still the most penalty minutes <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome so just to put it into context a lot of them weren't my fault i'm just being honest i was stronger than most players but i'm like man if i played rugby that would have been such an asset <laughs> you would have been awesome Lev kelter you know it was ice hockey kind of under 18 oh, yeah. u.s hockey also soccer and she's been a fantastic you know, Olympia. Yeah, I, saw, I she, saw her when, well, I saw her in when, was yeah, the exactly. When we were in Rio. Yeah. Yeah, got, yeah. yeah. I got to give the um, bronze medal, I believe in the, to the women in those Olympics. Yeah. It's, it was a great, Rio was fun. Kind of crazy. Like so fun. driving from the Olympic village to the high performance center and like just so weird cool. stuff would happen. Like a horse would run out of a favela and hit a car. And yeah. like, it was just like, this is crazy. <laughs> <laughs> Where am I? Yeah, but Alev's yeah, yeah. one of many, many amazing athletes for that team. They just won this last weekend in Spain. Oh, cool. Sevens. And Alev is actually yeah, contracted in Europe now. Oh, she is. Huh. Yeah. So that's why I want to bring, I want to bring all those, those U.S. athletes back from the U.K. because they're yeah. just making the English better. And it's like, okay, well, let's, if, if MLR on the men's side is just the bandwidth isn't there, let's at least the free yeah. jacks have a professional women's team and we'll find okay. competition. Let's work really hard to find competition, but the models won't be the same. And that's what I have to get myself and everybody else wrapped around is it's going to be a long-term deal. And they're not the same models. They, they can help each yep. other out, but it's not necessarily the same, but all those athletes deserve to play in front of a home crowd and, and grow here and grow the game here. And you know, our yep. academy has girls and boys and they both should have aspirational pathways. Not the, the Olympics is there, but beyond that, like it's a, a, as, yep. a, as a profession. So I think that's a, that's a really important part. So speaking yeah, of Yeah, that's one thing I hope, I hope we see, um, you know, why I love, I mean, Title IX at the end of the day is an educational act. It's not a sports act. It's about like equal opportunity for education and sport is such, such a phenomenal form of education. The whole, if we don't, you know, if these young men have men to look up to, that's why I'm big, you know, the whole expression, you can see it, you can be it. Like the more we can provide these opportunities, the more you can get younger girls and parents to be like, oh, that's a, that we're giving hope, inspiration to these young women, as well as their young boys. Like we should be doing that. We should be providing role models for both genders. And uh, just last point on that. When I came back from the 98 Olympics, I remember visiting a bunch of Boy Scouts. And that, like, struck me because I had little boys looking up to me. It's awesome. And, like, little boys need strong female role models. It's yes, like, absolutely. Besides absolutely. just their mother. They absolutely. And so, again, if we're actually thinking about society now, if you want to, like, abstract at that level, we as a country, as a, you know, community – We'll be thinking about it's not just about the money, although that's what I'm advocating for. I think there's a big mark out there. It's about the bigger picture of like what are we trying to achieve and build better communities. Build better communities. I mean, again, you need more women in in high positions to normalize it. One for the girls, but also for the boys. They're like, oh, 
okay, yeah, girls can do it. And it just changes everything. I don't know. I'm, so I'm obviously a advocate for sport for a number of reasons. Not and 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 not a trade off. I mean, I have two sons. I want all kids to have opportunity. All kids to have those. You're not mutually exclusive, as you said earlier. Totally, totally. They and you know, little out. girls. Now they have the opportunity to play rugby and knock someone over. There's a lot of little girls that love that. And it's awesome. That versus, oh, go be a figure skater. Not everyone wants to be a figure skater, even though that's more culturally acceptable. Go knock someone over. That's your cup of tea. Great. It's <laughs> highly skilled. Like the, watching the, the national champion, Cleach so National good. Championship, Dartmouth Harvard this year. It was, it, there's just, it's awesome. So good. It's awesome entertainment. It's really awesome entertainment. And, and, and rugby, I'll just give rugby some love because I, you know, obviously I didn't, I didn't play, but I'm on the board and I, I did. Part of the reason I joined the board, it's the culture. Like rugby has such a cool culture. Isn't they awesome? are very different than most sports. Hockey's pretty similar, but I think rugby takes the cake so in terms great. of it's about team. Like there is no superstar. And that is the thing, honestly, I struggle with because with my work with Sports Innovation Lab, we point a lot towards the athlete as the entertainer. What's on the front, you know, not on the back, you know, as as they say. But you need more of what's on the back to be accessible to fans. Heroes. Like what? Yeah, what is that going to do to the dynamic of like you know team first? So anyway, I love rugby, but it is something with rugby and hockey. I th I think about a lot. Like, can you do both? Can you really have a team when you need those individual stars to elevate to sell the sport? And yeah, you have to. Sure, we have your thoughts. <laughs> yeah, we, no, we have to. Like it's because it, 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 there are there have been heroes in the game, but we haven't done a good job sharing those stories on the women's yeah. and men's side, and we have to share those stories and do a better job of it. This year, the league is going to names on the back of the jerseys. That was highly controversial because it wasn't part of tradition. But we've been doing it in sevens for years, and the reality is, little kids need to know those names, and we need to figure out a way. Not should we, but we need to provide those similar opportunities for our great women's athletes as they in the, at the professional game here in North America. It has to happen. And that's the, that's the conversation I'm trying to have with our investors and everybody else is, and I think they all, everybody is starting to coalesce. It's just, you know, it, it's, it's getting it done. And like anything is execution. Last, uh, but not least before we get into rapid fire, the Olympics are around the corner. We're about to start the Olympics. Has, has, has the Olympic movement changed? Does it, does it still fit into our society? I remember watching the 84 Olympics. The torch came through my town of Salt Lake City. Never been so excited. You know, again, it was all linear. It was, um, and the, and the, just the growth of that, a whole Olympic narrative and you know what NBC did a really good job of is selling that story it was accessible it seemed like we cared it was cold war us versus the soviet union is that a nostalgia is it does it have what is the place of the olympics in our future well i think there'll always be a place and i might be biased but i think it's you know it's the world's best athletes get the opportunity to compete. And you, and the, the thing is, you can do that at the Worlds. You can do that at World Championships. So why is it different? Well, it's it's all countries, all sports, and it's a very visible, visible, accessible platform, brand, if you will. Everyone knows they come to learn about sports, to learn about new athletes, too. And in some ways, again, I don't know if we're, I don't know, it, you, peace. It's like yeah. so it's symbolic it's more than sport you know last olympics in pyeongchang i was there i got to meet and talk to the korean women's hockey team korean meaning north and south korea played on the same team that's unbelievable that's that's crazy awesome. yeah they were literally on the same team and you had members of the government from north korea sitting with members of government from south korea and you know that war has been going on forever and and the world got to see it not only that country but like look it's possible through sport and it was, you know, it's not going to change everything, but at least it's like it opens a, a dialogue, a conversation. So I think the Olympics are have always been more than sport. They are sport at its best, but you get that in the worlds. They're sport at its best. They're less frequent, you know, every four years as opposed to every year or every two years, which is, I think, part of the the intensity of it. And again, it's a platform to see what's possible. And And I'll just tell you firsthand, I met tons of athletes from all over the world. I, my mind, my perspective changed on the world by having just the, that little exposure, you know, every four years or, or interacting with these, uh, these athletes. So I, again, I think they've done a phenomenal job of making it, they call themselves a values-based movement. 
the capital N, not a sports organization. They're a right. movement. And it's, it's always been more than sport. And that's what I think why the public gravitates to it over just a really great championship. And I th- so I think it'll always have its cultural place. Now, I think it needs to navigate very carefully. Is it a political organization or not? Because it's doing a lot of political things, but while trying to be apolitical. And so, I th- you know, I'm going to be, I was on the inside for many, many years. I'm on the outside now to an extent. So it'll be an, an interesting, you know, decade, I think, as athletes are going to continue to push for, for more and want to say more. And how do you maintain that neutrality that we all love about the Olympics, which is you actually can bring people together while respecting everyone's individual differences and free speech and things like that. So yeah, interesting time, but I still think it'll always have its relevancy in, in sport. Well said. It is a fascinating time with the Olympic movement and very, yeah, to your point is very curious how it's all going to work, especially player just rights and brands. And that's, I think the world has gotten over that and that, that that's taken a while, but that's starting to change. So people mm-hmm. can actually do this on a regular basis and kind of the mm-hmm. Corinthian valleys of amateurism have disappeared in some ways, which, which is really healthy for the athletes and probably for the Olympic movement itself. Rapid fire, your favorite Olympic village moment. Oh, good one. Well, it's on the top of my head because we were just talking about that. We you have a flag raising ceremony when the teams show up to the Olympics. So the American team showed up in the Torino Olympics at the same time as the Iran team. And it was like days after Iran had announced their like nuclear intentions. And I yeah. remember our NGB, or sorry, our NOC, National Olympic Committee was, was like, what do we do? What do we do? And I remember all the athletes going, well, obviously this is a moment where we walk, we walk with them. Like we put down the politics and we just do what we're here to do, which is like show that we can walk side by side. And I remember it was the chaos behind the scenes of like politics and the athletes in that moment. I remember taking control. Like, yeah, we were just like, yeah, we were going to walk out there with them and we'll, our, both our flags will be raised and that's awesome. We'll celebrate that we're here together. And I remember that for me, it was like, again, one of those, yeah, I've met some cool athletes and traded some beer and all those, but that was like more of a, huh, that, that, that was meaningful. That's Olympics at its best. Very cool. Yeah. Advice for a young athlete today? God, there's so much pressure and stress and it's so intense now for young athletes. Find a space to, look, you got to have, you got to want it yourself. Can't be someone else's dream. But if you want it, you got to find a space to, decompress to find your you know find your energy find your people put your put your mindset in a good spot so you can then give your best on the field or on the court but i empathize with i think today's athlete a a lot the 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 pressures of them i think have only increased so one make it it has to be your dream and if it is your dream do everything you can to surround yourself in an environment with great people that care about you and Hopefully you will be successful because of that. All the other things are more tactical, but I think sometimes we forget that mental side of the game. Because it's because it's hyper specialized in social media. Is that? Yeah, more. Yeah, totally. I mean, I got to play multiple sports growing up. Hockey was always my number one. But yeah, the the specialization, the, the pressure, the the self pressure too. The the social of like I have to be a brand. I mean, that's required now. You can't not be a brand, and so. There's just more on your plates, more, to, always more to do. Training wise, we're so much smarter today than when we used to be. There's more, there's more you can be doing. Yeah. You got to be smart about not burning out in, in a number of ways. Yeah. I think young athletes today, it's learning how to manage up. And it's probably the same experience that we've had in companies and everything else is some of, mm-hmm. some of my failures have been not managing up well enough, managing down fine, but like that skill of coaching your coach and coaching your world to understand what 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 your needs are i think is is a really really pertinent point last question bring it all full circle if you're running the free jacks today what are you focused on <laughs> focus on the fan no i would for, obviously it has to be the athletes give them what they can to succeed you know i would the performance side the coaching side um you can't forget the product the people the the athletes themselves but then I mean, maybe again, I'm very biased. The, the find out who your fluid fan is, and service them, support them, nurture them, give them what they want because they'll they're the 
they're the bullseye. They're the ones that want to keep coming back and, and really care about your, your athletes, your team, your sport. So understand who they are and don't take them for granted, I guess. So we need to have that conversation continue because that's going to be so. <laughs> Thank you. How, Angela, how do folks get a hold of you? Social media handle, Twitter, Instagram, uh, LinkedIn? Yeah, yeah. Twitter, Twitter, Angela Ruggiero at Angela Ruggiero, R U G G I E R O, LinkedIn. I'm all over there. I post quite often, actually, on LinkedIn. But Twitter is where she drops a lot of great nuggets of advice. Thank you so much. Yeah, thanks for having me, Alex.